Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Balaam plays a prominent role in the book of Numbers. But who was he? Where did he come from? What was his religion? What was his occupation? The mystery of Balaam has interested exegetes and scribes for millennia. Join us as we talk to Jonathan Miles Ropker about his book, Balaam in Text and Tradition, which explores the figure of Balaam in the Hebrew Bible, Qumran, the New Testament, and beyond. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Jonathan Miles Robker studied history and philosophy with a concentration in religious studies at LSU, received a Master of Theological Studies from Duke Divinity School, and earned his PhD from the Faculty of Protestant Theology at the FAU Erlangen, Germany, and his postdoctoral habilitation at the Faculty of Protestant Theology of the WWU Münster, Germany. Jonathan, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. Thank you very much for having me. Glad to talk to you today. Jonathan, before we talk about your book, let's get to know you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, I was born and raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Um, the youngest of four children in that family. I studied at Louisiana State University um, after high school and continued on in Baton Rouge. Uh, while I was there, I studied uh, philosophy with a concentration in religious studies as well as history, uh, and took part in the uh, took part in the honors college there as well. While I was at LSU, I was allowed to do some exchange time on a program in Jena, Germany, uh, which is my first time really living overseas, uh, and I studied history and religion or theology then uh, in Jena. Once I finished up my degrees at LSU, I moved on to Duke Divinity School in North Carolina. Uh, While there, they afforded me a few opportunities also to go on exchanges, uh, then to Erlangen, also in Germany, in a different region of Germany. Uh, I liked it so much there that I eventually moved there uh, essentially permanently to uh, do a doctorate. Uh, First, first being in Germany for a degree, and I did some teaching while I was in Erlangen as well. Once I finished my doctoral degree there, I got a job in Wuppertal uh, and moved there uh, to do some work teaching and researching and simultaneously was working in Essen on a research project. Finally, in 2013, I uh, got a job in Münster in Germany, which uh, I've been here since then uh, for over six years now. Um, while I'm here, I've been continuing my teaching and researching with uh, several focuses in uh, textual history, literary history, ancient Near Eastern history, epigraphy, the Pentateuch, former prophets, and Deuteronomistic history. Sounds like a full life so far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Talking to a scholar once, he said, I'm probably the only person who's uh, in, the, in the history of the world who's made these moves in that particular order. So <laughs> you never know. So for our audience, Balaam is a biblical figure who shows up primarily in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 24. 
But your book, Balaam in Text and Tradition, covers every reference related to Balaam in the Old and New Testaments, as well as outside of the Bible in the writings of the Qumran sect, as well as on an inscription found in the Jordan area. Jonathan, how did you become so interested in the biblical figure of Balaam? Well, there, there are a couple of aspects to that, I guess, that uh, I think you should talk about. One, uh, it's, it's really a practical matter uh, how this came about. In Germany, um, once you finish your doctoral studies and you're going to continue on to do postdoctoral work, they uh, really encourage you to do uh, your research in an area that has nothing to do with what you researched before, right? So you don't kind of continue on with the study you've already finished. You look for a new area. And that particularly applies also as well to different portions of the canon. So for me, I was looking to do something with prophets. Uh, and initially was looking at the 12 uh, was where I wanted to work, uh, in particular with Aaron Schart in Essen. But while in Essen, I ended up on a research project about numbers. So that was the obvious choice then, is to research Balaam, this prophetic figure in the Pentateuch, uh, in the Torah, and focus on that. Um, from there, uh, there was a lot of different aspects that came up because of it. It's just a, a fabulous story. Uh, and I use that term really in kind of the, the traditional sense even, you know, this this kind of fable story of uh, the talking donkey, you know, it's just really amazing and interesting story. It also has a lot of text critical problems in it um, that I began to develop while I was working in Wuppertal with Siegfried Kreutzer. That's kind of an area that I really wanted to focus on as well. Uh, that doesn't receive a lot of attention in some of these studies uh, about uh, this prophetic figure, about Balaam. And looking through, uh, you know, kind of traditional uh, diachronic studies, you know, studies that look at kind of the history of the text, how it develops, these literary critical ideas, redaction critical studies, they all really kind of fall apart in numbers 22 through 24, as far as I saw it. Um, you know, if you're looking back at the documentary hypothesis, you have this postulate that you have the different sources that were put together um, to form the Pentateuch, people kind of leave it aside, you know, or if they divide it up, it turns in all these kind of nonsensical uh, little fragments that you can't read in any kind of sensible way. So I said, you know, this, this looks like an area where there's really more work that needs to be done. Um, so I, I started to think about, you know, who would write a story like this? When would they write a story like this? Um, what kind of changes does this character go through? Because it is a character that appears, you know, in a number of texts. And then once you get into the kind of the epigraphic side of it, you know, a whole new venue opens up. So you see as, you know, just scratching the surface at first, uh, there's just a whole variety of issues that are really interesting to get into with this figure. Um, a lot of changes in characterization. Um, you have uh, Balaam outside of numbers with uh, different kind of uh, literary attitudes about him. You know, this literary figure, uh, to keep it in that kind of sense, first of all. Um, to really get a grasp on him, you have to look at uh, numbers 22 through 24 and numbers 31, also in Deuteronomy, in Joshua, in Micah. 
Uh, and I think it's important then to take a look as well in New Testament and see what they do with this figure. And what can that maybe tell us about attitudes um, through time, about how this figure may have changed or attitudes about it might have changed? So really to cover that, I was you know, almost forced to look at everything. And we have the, the fortunate situation with Balaam that we do have these extra biblical texts that uh, deal with Balaam, the son of Beor, or with the prophecies of this figure. Uh, you know, on the one hand, the the, the inscription from Tilde Allah that was discovered in Jordan, but also these these Qumran documents that uh, you know deal with his his prophecies. You know, you have a similar kind of attitudes about him uh, in this Jordanian inscription. You know what he was, what kind of a figure he was. He had the same kind of power, uh, but it goes in kind of a different direction with him. How long did it take you to write this book? Uh, well, that's a tricky question. Uh, <laughs> how uh, it, it usually is with these projects, you know. Um, I guess I really started work on this uh, in about 2012, and it kind of came on in fits and starts, uh, and there were some issues, you know, how am I going to do this, and what are the approaches? Is this really a project that I can, that I can see through? Uh, and then there were some issues that came up in the meantime that kept me from the manuscript and everything. Uh, and then so basically picking it up again in about 2000, uh, let's say almost 2015, you know, then I kind of wrote it and finished it up in October of 2017. Uh, so it was a multi-year uh, project, you know, and that uh, lots of different things going on there uh, and working on how to get access to the inscription in the best possible way and things like this. Um, and also just, it's a, it has a huge uh, amount of secondary literature about it uh, because this is a, you know, I like to say it's a, it's an incredible story. Uh, and it seems like a lot of people because of that really want to write about it and engage with it. So what can you tell us about Balaam historically? Where was he from? What was his profession? Well, <laughs> Uh, I'm a bit, I'm a bit cautious with the term historically. Um, if you mean, you know, as a historical personage, um, I'm going to leave that kind of aside for a second. Um, I think on the literary, from a literary standpoint, right, where we have, you know, these writings about him and where they come from, the, the oldest portions in the Bible, as far as I can tell, as far as I think, describe him as an Aramean, right? So he's probably, you know, from like around the area around Damascus. This is in the numbers, you know, numbers 23. That's his, his description of himself in one of these oracles. Even, you know, he's, he's, he's Aramean. Um, the Der Allah inscription implies the same about him, although it doesn't really come out and say it as specifically as it does in the Bible. It implies that he's Aramean because his name is recorded in Aramaic form. He's called the son of Beor, and there it's Bar Beor, you know, Bar being the Aramaic word for son. Some of the speech and some of the recounting of that story as well has kind of an Aramaic character to it, an Aramaic inflection. And I think that that's possibly like a literary attempt uh, to make him look like an, an Aramean or to present him that way or because this tradition about Balaam uh, originated in this kind of 
Aramean, Aramaic background. So I think originally, uh, for my taste, that puts him firmly in this kind of Aramean, Aramaic context. Later, I think that develops. Um, and they regard him as a Mesopotamian. That's kind of the attitude you find about him in Deuteronomy. This is a, you know, it makes sense to view him as a Mesopotamian because that's a group, a culture that is kind of known in the ancient Near East for their uh, magical, if I can call it that, let's say that in quotes, for their magical professionals. And that makes it a plausible transformation. Add to that the fact that, um, you know, the Bible, for example, refers to Mesopotamia as Aram of the two rivers, right? Um, Aram Naharaim. Um, that seems like a really easy connection to make. Um, that he's an Aram, he's an Aramean in Numbers 23, but what he means, reading it from the perspective of Deuteronomy, is that he's actually Mesopotamian. Um, so I think that's that's one kind of way he trans, transforms, but he's originally an Aramean. Uh, some later traditions uh, and manuscripts even, they suddenly kind of turn him into an Edomite. Um, but that's possibly a result of geographical considerations. You know, it moves him further to the south so that his connection to the Moabites makes a bit more sense uh, from a literary perspective um, as well. It could also just be an error in reading because in in Hebrew it's essentially you know a very very insignificant change between Aaron and uh, in the script. But I think um, he's going to be he's an Aramean originally, um, and there are some other types of visionaries that are known from Aramean context, and I think he he's probably somewhere in that kind of. Um, profession, if we can use that term. Um, he is someone who has some kind of a, uh, let's call it a prophetic ability. He's a visionary. Um, he sees uh, and engages with deities. Um, that's both in the Numbers text and in the uh, in the inscription from Tel Dermal. Um These such figures are also known um, from some other Aramean context, like the Zakur inscription that was discovered in Hamat. Um, so he's some kind of seer uh, or magician. You know, he has visions, he has these nocturnal engagements with God uh, in the Old Testament. And I think that's kind of the, the oldest version of him that we have as well, a uh, divine specialist. Tell us more about this Tal Allah inscription. Sure, um, I'll say a few words about it. It's um, an inscription that uh, you know, purports to record, uh, you know, kind of a, a vision of this, uh, of Balaam, the son of Beor, um, that he engages with the, the gods, uh, the Shaddaiim, and he sees this, this vision of a world turned upside down, right? That... Um, that kind of the created order is, is out of whack, you know, that birds of prey turn into prey and that um, peaceful animals become voracious hunters and things like this. And he's sent then by other gods to warn 
um, his brothers, as it says in the text, you know, his siblings, presumably his people, about a coming catastrophe that's seen in this vision uh, of the world, of the topsy-turvy world, the world turned upside down. So while you have in the Bible the idea that he's kind of able to impact uh, how things develop, right? He's ordered by Balak to come and kind of magically curse the people, to curse the Israelites. Uh, in the text from Deir Allah, he's sent kind of as a missionary from the gods to warn the people of the danger that's coming against them. So it's a bit of a different perspective on it. It's more of a prophetic kind of attitude of what we know from the biblical prophets. In your research, you found that within the biblical canon, the view of Balaam seems to grow increasingly more negative. Tell us about that. Right. Um, this is it's just kind of a hunch. It's a feeling that I have, but I, I started kind of in the New Testament and wanted to see, you know, what did New Testament authors think about this character, right? So you have in, in Revelation, for example, he appears and he teaches Balak about how to lead the Israelites astray. You know, this is something that we also find in Josephus kind of recounting uh, of, this, uh, of this encounter. And in 2 Peter and in Jude, you have Balaam as this, this greedy prophet who's out for money, right? That matches some of the rabbinic understandings of Balaam, uh, as well as the understanding of the Vulgate that we find uh, in Numbers 22.7. So there where they mention Balaam, the New Testament texts are always negative about them. So that seems to be kind of the reception that uh, in, in significantly later periods really was maintained, right? He's this, this kind of bad dude. He's a greedy liar, if you will. We have another text that I think uh, alludes to Balaam as well, and that's Matthew 2. Um, and it's an allusion to the, to the rising of the star, right, which, you know, People are familiar with, with the Christmas story, right? The the rising of the star that brings the the magoi, the wise people, the wise men to look for the Messiah. And um, it, there's a strong illusion there, but it doesn't mention Balaam by name. And I think that may be important that there's this uh, acceptance of the prophecy, but there's this... Uh, lack of desire to mention the prophet. And that's particularly conspicuous, I think, because Matthew, uh, the author of Matthew, does not have to avoid scriptural citations, right? I mean, this is an author that in other places, you know, uses uh, scriptural citations very well, right? But here you don't have that. It's just this illusion. You have the kind of, kind of a similar phenomenon in Qumran, where you also have these messianic ideas. Um, that come from the fourth prophecy, the same one that's alluded to in Matthew, but they don't really reflect on who the person is who said this. I think there's a bit of reticence. There's a bit of hesitation uh, to, to bring this prophet up. I think there's, that's kind of indicative. It implies possibly a negative attitude about him. If you look at Numbers 22 through 24, though, for the most part, you don't find that. You don't find these disparaging remarks about Balaam. Uh, he's kind of insistent um, that he's going to only do God's will. He's not going to contravene 
anything that God says. He has to do, uh, he has to say what God says to him. The one exception to that is the episode with the donkey in Numbers 22, 22 through 35. So that could obliquely suggest kind of a negative aspect, but it doesn't really come out and say it as such. When we look at the other texts, though, um, in Micah, it's also similar. You know, it's uh, Balaam is uh, contrary to Revelation. He's one who stands against Balak uh, and, you know, thus protects Israel from whatever Balak wants to do to them. So he's contradicted him in Micah. That's also more of a positive aspect. Worst case, it's neutral. So um, on the one hand, you have these kind of old texts, probably, about Balaam uh, that don't seem to view him very negatively, and the latest texts that do. And in the middle, you have these other texts that I think kind of show the development of the attitude that in, in Joshua 24.10, you have Balaam was unable to curse Israel, and therefore he blessed it. In Deuteronomy 23, and this is strengthened particularly in the Masoretic text, um, also with Joshua 24 in the Masoretic text, you have the, uh, the idea that God transformed the curse. So in Deuteronomy, Balaam actually curses, right, which doesn't happen in Numbers 22 through 24. He actually curses, and that curse is then transformed into something else. Um, so we have stages in the transformation in the characterization of Balaam. He's uh, not someone who will only do as God desires, uh, as we find in Numbers 22 and 24. He's someone who tried to curse Israel, but was prevented from doing it. So he became the opposite, basically, of what he had been in the earlier phase. Jonathan, how does the Balaam narrative in its present form function within the book of Numbers? That's a really tricky one, because um, it's at an important, it's an important spot um, in the whole story. Um, and so I, I've wrestled with this a bit, and I'm still not sure I have a really satisfactory answer. Um, right now, I see Numbers 22 through 24 as a kind of a complement to Numbers 20s and 21. So you have the Israelites avoiding the Edomites in Numbers 20. Then you have them conquering the Amorites in Numbers 21. So there's these kind of two ways of dealing with people with other foreign peoples, let's say, or, you know, I guess more importantly, how foreign peoples deal with the Israelites. And then you have the Moabites in Numbers 22 through 24, and Balak, who wants to defeat the Israelites. Right? So Balak has seen what the Israelites did to the Amorites and that they were unsuccessful. So he sought supernatural aid, basically, for his undertaking to, to destroy them, to defeat the Israelites. You know, this is a common kind of thing in the ancient Near East. Before you go to war, you want to have, uh, you know, someone come and read signs for you and say, you know, what's going to happen in the battle? Can we influence the battle? Can we appease the gods to do this, right? So to this end, to influence uh, his ability to destroy the Israelites, he's called this, this magician. Right, this visionary, Balaam. The plan backfires, though, 
and Balaam blesses them, the people from different locations. And these are locations that the text kind of suggests may be affiliated with other deities, right? So Israel then is then blessed through the mouth of this, this pagan, if I can use that term, and, uh, you know, without really recourse to the text, this, this pagan, right? He's, he's blessing them in the name of their God from the position of these other gods. It's kind of usurping that power. And the, the climax of the whole story leads to Balaam essentially suggesting that a king will arise in Israel and defeat all of its enemies. I think in the, you know, in the current text, uh, and probably in an older phase, it's really about David is who they're thinking about in the first instance. Um, but it developed in kind of this messianic idea, right? Once the, uh, you know, the kingdom kind of came to an end and there was problems with the Davidic dynasty. Uh, so it develops into this kind of messianic text. Nonetheless, uh, the, the Moabites and, and the Midianites in Numbers 25, which immediately follows this kind of big high point of blessing, they lead to the downfall of the older generation, right? There's this, this story of a plague, and this very confusing story in Numbers 25, but the blessing still remains. And we see that afterwards because the new generation comes in Numbers 26, and that's going to be the generation that makes it into the promised land. And that starts then in the last chapters of Numbers. They conquer Midian in Numbers 31. And they begin to take hold of the promised land in the last chapters, Numbers 32 to 35, essentially. So I think it's kind of a, a transitional uh, text to move from one generation, the generation of the desert, to the generation of the promised land. Fascinating. Jonathan, before we let you go, are there any other projects you can tell us about that you're working on? Uh, sure. I'm in a kind of a research group um, that works on problems, issues of the Pentateuch and the Hexateuch um, with uh, several European scholars. We all meet about once a year and we're working on a publication now. Uh, you know, how do these things come together? You know, what, is, what can we agree on uh, in this kind of currently disparate, shattered field of Pentateuch studies? What can we agree on? What's consensus? Um, where do we have differences in interpretation and why did those come about? What's the background for that? So that's one area that I'm continuing to work on. And uh, I'm going back to kind of my roots of the dissertation uh, and I'm doing uh, quite a bit more research on Kings. And I hope to uh, do a commentary on kind of the first half of first Kings uh, and get working on that. Uh, so that's something else I'm also looking forward to. Thank you, Jonathan, for being with us and for sharing the fruits of your labor. Yeah, thank you for having me. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.